I want you to take a moment to think of everything that happens to you in life that works to steal your joy. Merciless boss, canceled vacation flight, difficult diagnoses, someone keying your car. Every day of your life, something great or small works to steal your joy. And you know this, right? You experience it. But as last time we were together, um, we saw that, that our great and glorious God works to occupy the hearts of his people with joy. Now, how does this reality come into our lives? For there are plenty of Christians who don't seem to be all that joyful. And I need this message just as much as them. What is the solution? Godly wisdom. Today we look at wisdom under the sun, and we will see that the more we embrace godly wisdom, the more we are suited for joy, no matter the hebel or vanity of life. Our passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil case, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's troubles lie heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolong his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people who, who happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we do need your word. We need wisdom from heaven to rain down upon us. This world we live in calls evil good and good evil, and we're in the midst of it as your people. We seek to live holy and good lives uh, as we ourselves are even tempted by the things around us, uh, not to trust in your provision. So, Father, speak to us clearly, we pray. Amen. You know, think of all the billions of dollars people spend each year trying to look a little bit better. Makeup, braces, gym memberships. Last night I was at a birthday party and I spent about an hour talking to a distinguished plastic surgeon. He says, this is a banner year. Add to that the billions of dollars that people spend on emotional therapy. I haven't done the totaling of it up, maybe you could Google it. But do we not agree as humans, especially here in the West, that we pour huge amounts of resources into emotional and physical well-being? But what we've learned so far in this sermon series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun, is that it is all hebel, that is, it's vapor, it's vanity. It's like a, it's like a drop on a, of water on a hot skillet. Life never delivers what we are looking for it to deliver. Now, all is not lost. The writer here wants us to see that there is a way to living under the sun with the few short years that God has given us. And it involves wisdom, and not your normal wisdom, like street smarts, right, or just mental shrewdness. No, there is a wisdom, but it's from above. And this wisdom has an amazing transformative effect in fact, as we shall see, it actually changes how we feel and how we look. Look at the very first verse. It begins with two rhetorical questions. Who is like the wise? Answer, no one. Second question, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Well, only the wise, I guess. And then he says something amazing. Because of this heavenly wisdom, the believer's appearance changes. Here's what he says. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Phil Riken points out that godly wisdom makes a difference in the way people look. People who live without God in the world often show the proud demeanor or stern expression that comes from a heart hardened by sin. But the wisdom of the gospel turns the frown of sin into the smile of grace. Or, or as the psalmist wrote, those who look to the Lord what are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. A prominent atheist and journalist, Matthew Paris, wrote a lengthy article for the Times about a strange phenomenon that he observed in Africa. The piece is entitled, Why Africa Needs God. Although Paris makes it clear that he does not believe in God at all, he admitted that Christianity made a tangible difference in the lives of the people he knew in his boyhood home of Malawi, as well as elsewhere as he traveled throughout Africa. And not only did he admire the good work that Christians were doing as he was, they were caring for the poor and for the sick, he also liked the way they looked. Here's what he wrote. The Christians were different. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. 
Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to, something in their eyes. Now, let's process then this biblical truth. Biblical wisdom brings personal transformation. It changes us from the inside out. That's what the preacher is showing us this morning. And it's the key to living life under the sun, that there is this wisdom from above, wisdom that only comes from heaven. It's a, it's a gift of God's grace. And like all of God's grace that's given to fallen man, it changes us, does it not? And as we'll see, it even allows us to live with great joy on earth. Our big idea here this morning is this. Godly wisdom alone produces joy in all circumstances. So our passage begins with this pronouncement, who is like the wise? No one else really seems to be able to interpret things properly. And then um, he goes through the rest of this is really just one giant case study after case study divided into two sections. The first section that we're going to look at is our first main point, godly wisdom and human sovereignty. Uh, And then godly wisdom and divine sovereignty. Those are our two points. So in our first section, the preacher looks at human sovereignty in two areas. He looks at at, at those who are above us and those with power around us. In verse 2, he presents this example, right, of of someone who's like an advisor to a king, a capricious, unpredictable, sovereign king. Now, for the most part today, we we don't have kings who rule uh, without any guardrails. In America, our founding fathers thought it was wise to split the government up into three different branches, right? But there are countries around the world today that are governed by dictators. And sometimes, is it not true, even our places of employment or our schools, in those places, our bosses and our teachers, they can, they can kind of rule like many kings or queens, right? So what does a wise person do in providing their service to unpredictable, unpredictable kings, queens, dictators, and bosses? The wise person says the preacher will state their case and not push it. Verse 3, do not be hasty to go from their presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever pleases, whatever he pleases. So have in mind, here's somebody who says to the boss, if you don't take my advice, you are a complete idiot. And then they run out and they slam the door. Uh, The preacher teacher here says, not so fast. Because the king or your boss is sovereign. At the end of the day, he just does what he pleases. I think we all know this. We've experienced this in life, right? And so rather argue with the king when he rejects your advice. It is wiser to just take your time and go quietly from his presence. For the king is sovereign. He does whatever pleases. The king is not accountable to any other human being. And sometimes our bosses and teachers act that way too. So the fool might argue with the king and threaten evil consequences, but verse 5 states, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Next, the preacher turns to human sovereignty around us. You know, it's been said that that a man's home is what? His castle. um, He might not be sovereign over anything from nine to five at his job at the lumber yard. But once he gets home, he's got that lazy boy recliner for a throne. And he's got the remote control to control the world. And it's true, we all live to some degree upon the thrones of our own lives. When you're a child, you can't wait to get out from under your parents' sovereign rule, right? And then what happens? You grow up, and then you move back home with your parents. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, 
No, you join the world of 8 billion other souls sitting on their own thrones, all trying to exercise their own authority throughout the world. The problem is everybody else's sovereignty pushes against your sovereignty, does it not? That's what the preacher alludes to in verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. See, we're sinners, and we all want our sovereignty, and we all want to expand ours out to the hurt of others. Listen, when there is no God shining wisdom into this life under the sun, then life really is all about you striving for your own little kingdom. But the key to life under the sun is not to live like the rest of the world does. The preacher says no, and for a couple of reasons. One, living this way never takes away the heartache. Verse 6, man's trouble lies heavy on him. When life under the sun for you is nothing more than you trying to become more and more sovereign over creation, in the end, everything weighs heavy on you. Remember, more money, more problems, right? But also, this truth is, is that our sovereignty as human beings is really quite pitiful, is it not? How so? Well, it's powerless. Powerless to even know what tomorrow holds. That's what verse 7 says. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? In other words, we're not sovereign over what comes tomorrow. There's so much uncertainty, is there not? And add to that, verse 8. Uh, our sovereignty is so pitiful because the one thing that we really want to control, we're ultimately powerless over, and that's our own deaths. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of his death. You know, when wisdom from heaven presses into your life, it has an effect upon you as it reminds you that we really aren't as sovereign as we want to be. You know, two months ago on June 24th at 1.25 a.m., the 12-story South Tower of the Chaplin Towers condo in Surfside, Florida, collapsed, killing 98 people as they slept in their beds. You know, none of those 98 people thought that that day was going to be their last. I'm sure they all went to bed with sovereign plans for the next day when they were to be awakened. Uncertainty powerlessness. Listen, even those who know the Lord, we are uncertain. We are powerless. None of us are as sovereign as we think we are. None of us are as sovereign as we would like to be. And none of us are sovereign enough to experience lasting joy for ourselves in these circumstances. So the writer says what? It's hebel. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. So let me ask you, are you wise enough to see the futility of you controlling your life to the extent that you can really be happy? Can you see that your sovereignty really doesn't control all that much? Wisdom from above will help you understand this. As verse 1 states, the wise know the interpretation of a thing. That is, when by God's grace you come to see both the importance of godly wisdom, but also what? The limitations of godly wisdom. You begin to live with understanding. And it's an understanding that allows you to process your existence from a heavenly perspective. And, and in doing so, it allows you to experience joy, despite the fact that your life is full of uncertainty and you are powerless. 
That's the first point, godly wisdom and human sovereignty. Next, he turns his attention to divine sovereignty. Here's what happens. So now he turns his attention and he looks at the world we live in. And in that, to the unwise, it looks as if what? It looks as if God really isn't on his throne. There is no sovereign above. Evil is everywhere. And God seems to not be doing anything about it. And guess what? The world we live in actually praises evil and punishes good. Bonnie and Clyde are two of the most cruel, brutal criminals ever to terrorize America. For months, they terrorized and killed civilians and police officers alike. Bonnie once shot an injured police officer in the face as he lay on the ground, wounded. And yet, somehow, they were adored by hundreds of thousands. When justice finally came, they were gunned down by Texas Rangers. And guess what? 10,000 adoring fans showed up for Clyde Barrow's funeral. And then next day, 20,000 gathered for the funeral of Bonnie Parker. Flowers came from all over America, including some with cards from gangsters like Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger. Clyde Barrow's tombstone reads, Gone but not forgotten. How nice. Bonnie Parker's reads, get this, as the flowers are made sweeter by the sunshine and the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. Ah, oh, really? Our preacher speaks of this celebration of evil in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy places. They went to church um, and, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. We live in a world that calls evil good and good evil. We live in a world that celebrates wealth, power, success through whatever means necessary. We don't care how you got it. Now, good behavior should bring good results, but actually it's the bad people who seem to prosper. The writer of Ecclesiastes points out that because justice is delayed, people think it is good to do evil. That's what we see in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, like right away, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That makes sense, right? He's saying that someone swindles an elderly woman out of her money and this evil deed isn't punished right away and maybe the guy walks free. Uh, and it seems to the world like everybody's able to get away with it. And so others are watching and they're saying, hmm, it looks like crime pays. Maybe I will join in too. And their hearts are set to doing evil. So they cheat on taxes or stop paying child support or they sell that used car without disclosing that the transmission is actually failing. Every day, you and I are confronted with a society that calls evil good and good evil. We live in a world where justice is delayed, or even it just never happens. Someone steals your identity, keys your car, and you cry out, God, if you're really there, get them now. Not tomorrow, not later today. God, do it now. You've experienced that, right? Felt that way? This reminds me of Jesus' disciples in Luke chapter 9. 
Luke writes that Jesus uh, had set his face towards Jerusalem, that, that, that he was traveling there. He's going to the cross. He's on his way to die. His face is set towards it. And they're taking a shortcut through Samaria. And Jesus sent his messengers ahead uh, to find a village where he could, be, um, could, could lay his head for the night. But no one welcomed him. And do you remember how James and John responded? Do you, do you remember what they suggested? Here's what they said. They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It seems like a great idea, doesn't it? When I read this earlier in the week in my study, it brought me to tears. Why? Because the disciples dearly loved Jesus. They believed him to be God's very son. And here is the Son of God in all his veiled glory, on his way to give his life for the sins of the world. He is rejected by the very people he came to save. How unfair. How unjust. Like you and me, the disciples wanted to bring God's justice down. Now, if you're on your throne, God, you, you know what just happened was wrong. Deal with it now. Give us the word, Jesus. We'll do it for you. Jesus didn't give him that word. He had another word for them. Don't you dare. Consider Jesus' response. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. This is that Jesus is saying to them, witness the love and the patience that I have for my heavenly father. My father is on his throne. Evil will have its day. But I have set my face towards Jerusalem. There is a cross that awaits me there. There my father's justice and mercy will meet me. Now, let's move. It's getting dark. My friends, if you ever find yourself at your wit's end, because you've sought to live a God-honoring life and evil keeps coming your way and you wonder, where are you, God? You don't seem to be sovereign right now. How about you rain down some fire on my enemies? When you feel this way, press into your mind the wisdom of the truth that our Lord suffered evil upon evil as he walked on this earth. Listen, justice was always delayed for him. And he was okay with that. How? Why? Because there was a wisdom that he had that produced joy within him. He knew things that allowed him to say, let's just move on to the next town. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read that for the joy that was set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It gave Jesus joy to suffer in this dog-eat-dog -dog world so that he could die on the cross to fix it all. Listen, he knew this. He knew that godly suffering always produces praiseworthy results. Do you know that? Do you see that, that all of your following after Jesus and suffering for his sake always produces praiseworthy results? And when you know this, it changes how we live. This is a, a heavenly wisdom that, that, that occupies our hearts with joy. Bring it on, we say. 
I don't need to call down fire to soothe my fury. I call up to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in my time of need. Listen, how do, you can know that this wisdom is, is operating in your life by whether or not you understand grace, right? Grace for today and grace for tomorrow and grace for the end of days. This is what the, the, the wisdom that the preacher points out in verses 13 and 14. Look at verse 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Like, this is what he's seeing. People are out there just doing all this stuff, and they're like, they're doing better than I am. Here's what he says. Here's how he processes this. He says, though all this happens, yet I know. You see that? Yet I know. The preacher knows what? How to interpret a thing that we just read earlier in the, in the, in the chapter. See, there's a wisdom above that has illuminated his soul. Yet I know what? What does he know? That it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong the days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. You know, despite how things look down here under the earth, the preacher knows that God is on his throne and he encourages us. How? He says it will go well with those who fear God. Now, three times in these two verses, we read uh, fear God. It appears it will not go well for those who fear God, but it will go well for those uh, who do. Now, for many, fearing God is like the last like, thing that they would attribute to God. For them, God is more like, you know, Santa Claus, you know, uh, more like Santa Claus than a glorious, all-powerful creator of all things. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, it does not simply mean that we're afraid of God. That can be part of it. Rather, the fear of God is what Michael Eaton calls. Here's what he says. The fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. Like in Luke chapter 5, remember when Jesus told Simon Peter to, to cast his net on the other side of the boat? And Peter's like... Mister, I've been fishing all my life and fishing all night long. We haven't caught any fish on the left or the right, but just as you command, I guess I'll do it. You remember what happened? Well, one, Peter caught so many fish, the nets were breaking, and they had to call over other fishing vessels in order to gather the catch. And two, this is the important part, Peter didn't run up to Jesus and do one of those manly chest bumps. He didn't high him, you know, fist pump thing. What did Peter do? He became wise. Luke 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's a picture of what the fear of God is. The awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God in your presence. And listen, this fear, listen, took Peter to an unlikely place. God's grace. Why is that? How is that? Consider Psalm 147.11. 147.11. Here's what we read. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope 
in his steadfast love. Now, this verse should strike you as odd. It encourages us both to fear God and hope in his steadfast love. Now, now which is it? Think it through. Usually when you fear something, like an angry German shepherd, you run away from it, not towards it, right? Usually when you fear someone, you look around for someone other than that person to turn to for help, right? But here, and listen, and only in the gospel, are fear and hope unified into one. The one whom you rightly fear is the one you can no longer run from but must run to. It's so counterintuitive. And that's what Peter experienced. He had a holy fear of Jesus, and then Jesus became his only hope. You know, that's why the Bible states that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see it in black and white in our text, verse 12. Yet I know that it'll be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Not at a distance, but before him. The Hebrew reads, min lo panah. It literally means before his face. It conveys being in God's presence, face to face with God. Listen, this is completely unique to Christianity. The one you fear is now the one in whom you hope. That's why John Newton helps us, it's what he helps us to sing about in the hymn Amazing Grace. Was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, right? Listen, this wisdom from above, this godly wisdom that causes you to both fear God and trust in him, this grace that relieves all fears, it is the beginning of wisdom, And it is the wisdom that allows you to live in this sin-stained, evil-glorifying world with joy, no matter how hard life is under the sun. Only this wisdom allows you to interpret a thing. Only this wisdom makes one's face shine and the hardness of his face change. That's what the next case study shows us in verse 14 and 15. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. See what's happening here. They're juxtaposing. There are the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are the wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say this is vanity, vapor, hebel, mist. This is how the world is. Righteous people are treated as if they're wicked, and wicked people are treated as if they're righteous. This is how life is under the sun. So then what are we to do about it? When we witness evil being praised and goodness being punished, how are we to interpret such a thing? What does the preacher commend to us? Cry, get angry, get even, call down fire? No, it's amazing. Look at what he says. Verse 15. He says, I commend joy. When you see this crap happening in the world, what do I commend? Joy. Seems so odd. Verse 15, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You know, the the Hebrew word translated commend is typically translated with the word praise. 
Like when you find a wonderful restaurant and you praisingly recommend it to a friend. That is what the preacher is doing here. He is praising to us this joy that only God God can work into your life. So let it sink in. Only when you've come to the cold, hard realization that this world cannot and will not deliver happiness to you. Only when you realize that the key to happiness in this world is not found in this world, but only in God, your creator, then and only then does this new way of living open up to you. Only after rejecting your hopes and dreams of being happy with your life as you sovereignly go about it, can God then come into your life and occupy your days with joy. Or as Jesus said, you must lose your life in him in order to find it. He always had a much simpler way of putting things, didn't he? And it is only then that this final case study is laid before us. We'll finish with this. Isn't it not true, and isn't it not one of our greatest problems, that we live on earth wishing we know what God knows? Only God knows the future. Only God can open and close the doors in our lives. And those who are not comfortable with God being sovereign, what happens? They're anxious. They cannot sleep at night. Instead of joy in today, which is what God wants us to have, we worry about tomorrow. Is this something that affects you? It's not just me. Here's what we read, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night Do one's eyes see sleep? Then he realized, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, first time, the work that God has done on the Son. However however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, second time. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The preacher is saying, no matter how hard you try, you cannot find out the mind of God. Oh, we sure hope that God wants us to be rich and have a great marriage or never get cancer. Oh, we hope that that, that's God's plan. But what if it isn't? God is sovereign and we are not. Question is, are you wise enough to let God be God? Which means, are you wise enough to trust God, to know that God loves you. He loves you dearly. And he and he alone is capable of making, out, making all things work out for good for those who love him. Are you able to trust God to provide for tomorrow's needs? And as a result, you actually enjoy today's daily bread. Godly wisdom and godly wisdom alone allows you to sleep at night Because you trust your uncertain tomorrows to the God of certainty, who, by the way, loves you. Christian, are you okay with God knowing what you cannot know? Better yet, are you able to rest in his sovereignty? Does it produce in you joy? Does it change the hardness of face? and cause your face to shine. That's been a challenge for me. 
this week. As we gather at the Lord's table here in a moment, let the, let the holy word that we've just studied this morning produce in us a profound wisdom. As we look at the bread and the wine, let us be reminded that our Heavenly Father is daily watching over us in the good and in the bad of life. And so as we gather, let us commend to one another what? Joy. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. This will go with him in his toil to the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Let's pray. Father, because your spirit dwells in your people, what we have read has plainly made sense to us. Um, may you now press it deep into our lives. May we trust you more than before we came in here. May we allow you to be the sovereign one over our lives. And may we sleep well at night knowing that you have our plans laid before us. We thank you, Father, for what this meal signifies to us, um, that there is eating and drinking, and we, our days are occupied with the joy that you alone can give us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.